Our Father, we uh, are reminded of the admonition in uh, Proverbs 4, 23, where you tell us to guard our hearts, to watch over our hearts, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. Uh, the heart is central. Uh, the heart contains our minds and our wills, our intellects. It's the center of us. And so it's important that we watch over ourselves internally. We'll check ourselves physically. We'll, we'll put it in the calendar to get blood work. We'll get annual physicals. But we have got to watch our internal hearts daily, daily. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, out of the heart comes fornication, murder, slander, greed. Uh, our hearts are our biggest problem. So we have to watch them carefully and watch what we put into our minds and what we think on. We're grateful for the power of the gospel, which redeems us and saves us and makes it possible for us to have eternal life and to have our sins forgiven through Christ. And we are thankful that when we are born again, the scriptures tell us if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. And that is true. We, we are now on a path to growth, to spiritual growth, to becoming mature men in Christ. It's a slow growth, but it's growth that we desire, just as we desire growth in our children to see them develop. It's not fast growth. Uh, it's, it's slow growth. It's, it's even hard to measure on a daily basis. The same thing is true spiritually. We've got to watch our hearts. We've got to watch our minds. We've got to watch what we put into our minds. We're told in Romans 12 not to be conformed to this world, not to be conformed to the thinking of this world, but to be transformed, transformed by the renewing of our minds. So this is why we're here to study your word and to study your scripture. We, we also, Lord, are, um, we, we are incredibly needy for your wisdom. Every guy in this room, we are facing situations and um, decisions. We have things before us that are significant and consequential. Choices that we are going to have to make. And we've all made bad choices before. We need your wisdom. And the good news is you promised it to us in James 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. So as we're walking through this week and uh, getting to the midpoint of October, which is hard to believe, but we're, we're getting there fast, the weeks go by quickly, we, we, we need your wisdom, we need your direction, we need your counsel. Give us teachable hearts. Use your scriptures tonight to minister to us and give us what we need. Uh, alert us when we're going down the wrong road. 
Sometimes we got to slam it into verse and back up and, and get back to where we were and then go down that right path. Get our attention. Lead us. Don't let us be fools. Stop us in our tracks because you love us and because you want what's best for us. Help us to be men enough to listen and to respond. We thank you that you are our Father and have our best interest in mind. There's no better way than your way. So give us the light we need tonight for the steps that are right in front of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 2 Peter 2 tonight, and I will tell you this. 2 Peter 2 is a, um, it's a rough stretch of Scripture. And when I say it's rough, what I mean by that is that it is disturbing. It is, um, it is confrontational. It is aggressive. It is somewhat in our faces and we desperately need it because what's happening is that Peter is warning us of false teachers. False teachers can do incredible damage. False teachers can um, send people to hell forever. Uh, false teachers are a tremendous threat to the church. And throughout scripture, you've got false teachers. We shouldn't be surprised because Ephesians 6 tells us that as we follow Christ, we're in spiritual warfare. There is a war going on. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there are demonic forces. And it's, it's something that we can't see, but we're told about it in scripture. And Satan comes to rob and to steal and to destroy. That's you and your life. It's my life. It's my marriage. It's your marriage. It's our families. He wants to take us out. He wants to ruin us. Uh, he wants to devastate our lives and our legacy. Uh, that's why the warning is in 2 Peter chapter 2. In a sense, it's about um, warfare, and in a sense, it's about deception in warfare. Tim Challies is a uh, pastor and a commentator who has a great website, challies.com. <clears throat> he had an article recently about deceptive tactics that we used against Hitler in World War II. He says, during the Second World War, the Allied forces created a dummy army. And there is a picture here at the top of this article of a tank. But it's not what you think it is. It is an inflatable tank. He goes on and comments, eager to deceive the Germans into thinking they were stronger than they actually were, the Allies hired a team of artists and designers to create a fake army, one that would look just real enough to deceive spies snooping around. 
nearby or surveillance flights flying far overhead. So they built planes that were no more than wooden shells and tanks that were merely inflatable rubber, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them. These were units that were meant to be seen, but not to fight. Uh, they were meant to give the appearance of an army, even while they exacted none of the costs of an army. What's amazing, Challies writes, is that it worked. The Germans were deceived, a deception that had a profound effect on the outcome of the war, of that war. If you've studied military history, you've read more about this. Deception in warfare. S. Lewis Johnson was a longtime professor at Dallas Seminary and a, a great expositor of the scriptures, a great scholar. He preached for over 30 years here in Dallas at Believer's Chapel. He did a series on 2 Peter. He did a lot of Bible teaching that you can access. It's great stuff. And I was reading his uh, sermon this week on 2 Peter 2. And interestingly enough, I came up, came across this in regard to deception uh, in warfare. And he's talking about the false teachers in 2 Timothy 2, and we haven't read the text yet, but we will in just a minute. And he says this. He says, I think that there is justification for speaking of these false teachers as a kind of fifth column in the Christian church. The expression, the fifth column, was said to have been first used as a radio address by a Spanish nationalist general, General Mola, during the Spanish Civil War of 1936. As he was advancing towards Madrid, he said that he was coming with four columns of soldiers and that there was a fifth already inside the city that would rise up to support him. And out of that came our expression, the fifth column. And the fifth column is a term that we use to refer to any kind of aid or support that is given politically or militarily or in other ways in a subversive manner. So the false teachers of whom Peter speaks here are subversives. We're hearing a lot of conversations now about the deep state, those who are embedded and have a different goal. They're subversives. That's exactly what he's talking about here. False teachers are subversives. If you have your Bible, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, really what's going to happen here is that Peter, it's almost like, uh, if you remember the cowboy movies, and it's not unusual, you know, there'd be a bounty hunter. Steve McQueen used to be a bounty hunter. I mean, that's how he started. I'm just here to give you historical truth. <laughs> And, and he'd, he'd always have a wanted poster on him. And a wanted poster was a description of the criminal, what he looked like, what he had done, where he was hanging around. I came across a type of wanted poster recently. There's a, uh, there's a really cool old bar and grill uh, in Arroyo Grande, California, a little country town right south of San Luis Obispo. And uh, as you walk in, 
they've got this poster. It says Lost Dog. And uh, it's real big, the one they have. It says Lost Dog, three legs, blind in one eye, missing right ear, broken tail, recently castrated, answers to the name of Lucky. <laughs> I don't know why I like that so much, but I do. Um, this is kind of a wanted poster. I, I know why I liked it. I wanted to put it in because it was funny. And what we're going to be dealing with here isn't funny. We need a little bit of a, of a mental break here. So in, in Second Peter beginning with chapter two, and if you recall, he's ending chapter one by talking about the scriptures, in fact, to get the context. Let's read Second Peter chapter one, verses 19 through 21, which we covered last week. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Uh, Psalm 119, your, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You would do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own um, imaginations or interpretation, but No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He's talking about the apostles, men who were inspired by the Lord to write scripture, which is the actual word of God. Uh, the church, Ephesians 2 tells us, uh, is built on the foundation of the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus. So for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the importance of the word of God and following what the scripture says as given to us through men inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now we're driving right into the next verse, which is chapter two. And here's a great contrast. contrast. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, the way of the truth will be injured. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now this whole section runs down for 22 verses. We're just going to carve out bite-sized pieces over the next few weeks. And we're just going to handle those first three verses. Uh, there are um, seven traits of false teachers that are given in those three verses. And he wants us to be aware. He wants us to have a wanted poster in our heads of these guys. Uh, he wants us to, uh, a, a wanted poster in, in the sense of, uh, of look out, be aware. 
know that they're out there because they do unbelievable damage. And if you think they're not out there, you've already been conned. Let me give you the seven traits, then we'll go back and work our way through them. All right? So seven traits of false teachers. Number one, false teachers are secretive. This is all out of the text. Number two, false teachers are destructive. Number three, false teachers are actually denying Christ. They're actually denying Christ. Number four, false teachers are headed for destruction, eternal destruction. Number five, false teachers are popular and immoral. They are popular and immoral. Number six, false teachers are marked by greed and exploitation. They're marked by greed and exploitation. Number seven, false teachers are not only false in their teaching, but in their living. Not only false in their teaching, but in their living, how they conduct their lives. All right, there's the big picture. Let's go back and work it through. Number one, false teachers are secretive. Or to put it another way, false teachers are stealth. The, the stealth fighters, the stealth bombers, that, um, boy, that was amazing technology. You can't see them on radar, but they're there and they're coming. And you're about to experience shock and awe and you never saw it coming. Notice that it says in chapter two, verse one, but false prophets also arose among the people. Past tense. All the way through the Old Testament, you've got false teachers. All the way through. You, you, you've, got them, uh, you've got them in Jeremiah. He's rebuking them. You've got them in Ezekiel. Uh, all the prophets, when you read Kings and you read First and Second Samuel, uh, you've got the prophets showing up and they're rebuking the false teachers. Uh, there was a situation where Ahab, a bad king, and Jehoshaphat, a good king, got together and they were listening to the false prophets. And Jehoshaphat had enough brains to know this guy was full of it. And he says, aren't there, aren't there any prophets of the Lord? Well, yeah, there was a guy named Micaiah, but Ahab didn't like him because he, he never told him good stuff. And so go get Micaiah, and they bring Micaiah and as they're bringing him, the guy who was sent to retrieve him says, hey, make sure you, you know, I mean, give us a break here. Tell us something that will encourage the king. Micaiah wouldn't do it. He didn't give her a rip. His job was to tell the truth. His job was to declare the truth of God. That's what Old Testament prophets did. But there were always false prophets that opposed them. This text is saying, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, there will be false prophets moving ahead. But they're stealth. 
Turn with me. Jesus said the same thing. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets, watch this, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What does that mean? They're stealth. They, you don't, I mean, you hear these guys, uh, they look like spiritual leaders. They say the right things. They know the lingo. They know the culture. They have Bibles with their name is embossed in gold on the front. I mean, they, they know all the hymns. They can sing everything by memory. They're in the club. They're in the camp. I mean, they look like everybody else in our tribe. But they're not. They're counterfeit. They're stealth. Well, Okay, and Jesus didn't say they might come. He said they will come. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So wherever you have groups of Bible-believing Christians, wherever you have churches, you're going to have false teachers. They're going to show up, and they're going to try and do their work and deceive. Well, how in the world, I mean... uh, Gosh, how do you get them on your radar? Next verse. You will know them by their fruits. Look at their lives. Look at their attitudes. Look at what they do. Look at how they live. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes. No. Nor figs from thistles. Are they? No. So every good tree bears good fruit but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Look at the fruit. And you may not see fruit initially, but as time goes by, if you don't see any fruit, and what you see comes out of their life stinks, there you go. They're frauds. They're counterfeits. 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, verse 19, is cut down and thrown into the fire, and that's what he will do with false teachers. So then you'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in uh, your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, these guys are around. They're on Christian television. They write Christian books. So you've got to have some discernment. How do you get discernment? How do you figure out what's real and what's counterfeit? I heard this years and years and years ago. It's true that when they would teach secret service agents how to spot counterfeit money in the academy, they'd never show them counterfeit money. But they'd take them to the mints across the country. They would let them know what the texture of the paper was, what the ink was. They would become so familiar with that, with the coinage. With the, That's all they ever saw was the real thing so that when a counterfeit came along, they could immediately spot it. Something was wrong. Something's not right here. That texture is not right. 
It looks good, but there's something wrong. There's something amiss. The more you know the real thing, the more your senses will be trained, the scripture says, to discern between good and evil. This is why we study the word of God. So false teachers are stealth. They look real, but they're not. Number two, false teachers are destructive. They're destructive. Let's note in 2 Peter what he says in verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Destructive doctrine. Destructive uh, teachings. And note, as you go on in the last phrase of verse 1, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. We'll get to that in a minute. I, I, I mean, you want, you, want, you want your eyes peeled. Because they're out there. And they can do incredible damage. Turn, uh, please, to 1 Timothy 4.1. All the way through the scriptures, all the way through the New Testament, you've got warnings about false teachers. So if you go to 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul gives a warning. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, will apostatize, will deny the truth. Paying attentions to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means, now how are they going to fall away? Well, paying attention to deceitful spirits um, and doctrines of demons. So those are teachings that are not accurate biblically. They're off. The trajectory's off. They're contrary to the word of God. So you're going to have some fall away because they're listening to false teachers. <clears throat> How was the false message delivered? Next verse. By means of the hypocrisy of liars. So false teachers are characterized by lies. One of the things to watch for in the life of a spiritual leader is if they're truthful or not. Because whenever there is deception, there is a trail of lying. Whenever you see someone who professes Christ, yet they get involved in sexual relationships that are forbidden in Scripture, you will always find with adultery, you'll find a trail of lying. Because you have to lie to cover your tracks. And you have to keep lying. And you have to keep coming up with lies to cover what you said before. <clears throat> Mark Twain said, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Getting into a habit of lying is a really tough way to live because you're going to expose yourself. You're going to be found out. Because things start to not add up. You can only get away with that for so long. And this is what's going to happen to the false teachers. But he goes on and, he goes on and describes these guys. And you get a look into their hearts and into their minds. Uh, in uh, 4.2 of 1 Timothy. 
by means of the hypocrisy of liars, <clears throat> and, and sometimes, and I've interacted with, I've seen two guys, actually seen more, but two stand out to me. In ministry, uh, committed, committed to the scriptures, committed to teaching the scriptures. And uh, the first guy I met when I was 20, and I went to studies that he taught. He was a very effective teacher. The second guy I met in my late 20s, and I've watched those guys ever since. Uh, they're both pathological liars. Their default position is to lie, yet they can quote chapters of the Bible to you. But the closer you get to them, they've got a trail of busted up and broken relationships, which I'll show you in a minute. We'll get to that. And the question is, when, when the first guy, when I was in college and I'd go hear this guy, I'd drive 100 miles round trip in the middle of the week in LA to hear this guy teach and the traffic was horrific. But he was worth going to hear. He was a fabulous teacher and four or 500 college students would be there sometimes, that many, sometimes a couple hundred. I mean, it was a significant group. But then it came out from the guys that were in the ministry with him and had been through seminary with him, uh, some things began to fall apart. And some stories he had told them began to fall apart. And what turned out was that he was a serial adulterer. And women came forward, not one, not two, many. And uh, one of the guys that had worked with him for years and years, who had been utterly taken in and fooled, who was a very wise and discerning guy, and some of you have heard him teach, he told me, and I'm a 23-year-old kid, he said he's a pathological liar. He can lie and he never flinches. How can you do that? How can you teach the scriptures and lie through your teeth? And, and there's no conscience, there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit. How can that happen? He's seared in his own conscience as with a branding iron. Conscience is a nerve. You can sear a nerve and you can't feel anything. People with leprosy in third world countries who walk barefoot into a village, uh, leprosy is a, I thought as a kid it was a skin disease. It's a nerve disease. Your nerves die. And so if you're walking barefoot into a village and you step on a piece of glass and you're barefoot, you don't even feel the glass going into your foot. It's not until you get in the village and someone says, hey, your foot's bleeding. You can pick up a, a, a red hot poker and flesh is starting to drip off and you don't even know, you don't even feel it because your nerves are dead. By means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You've got to guard your heart. For from it flows the wellsprings of life. You want to keep a tender conscience so that the Holy Spirit can just go, just flick you. And you know the issue. You know what it is. What's he doing? He's trying to correct me. I'm off. 
I, I've just lied or I've lost my temper or whatever. But there's, there, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life, which if I continually, habitually lie, I'm going to get a hard heart and I can't even feel the ministrations of the Holy Spirit anymore. And I'm utterly cold and I'm utterly dead. That's frightening stuff. And you can have a library of theological books and still be in hell forever. Because it's all surface and it's all external. They're destructive. Uh, James 3. Let's look a little deeper into their motivations and into their hearts, these false teachers. James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. Uh, earlier in James, he's saying if you lack wisdom, you can ask God and he'll give to you generously the wisdom of God. All right? But there's another kind of wisdom. But if you have, 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, what is selfish ambition? There's a right kind of ambition. Paul said in Colossians, we make it our ambition to please the Lord. Um, you get up, you go to work, you work hard, you want to provide for your family, you want to meet their needs, uh, you want your life to count for the Lord, you want to influence others. That's all good stuff. Those are good ambitions. Um, but then there's selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is all about you. Selfish ambition is all about me. Selfish ambition is uh, I heard Bill Lawrence teach on this one time. It was absolutely fabulous. Lawrence just kept breaking it down. He said, selfish ambition is the need to be in control. Selfish ambition is the need to lead. Uh, selfish ambition is the need for the spotlight. Selfish ambition is the need to get the credit. Selfish ambition is the need to push your agenda. Selfish ambition, it's all these things we hate in other people. But it's present in us. So you've got to fight it off when it happens. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, see, this isn't about pleasing the Lord. This is about pleasing you. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be so arrogant and lie against the truth. Watch this. This wisdom, this selfish ambition, is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, it is natural, it is demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So the second individual I said who I met in my late 20s, who was a pathological liar and in ministry, they're now coming to the end of their life. And they've been able to get away with a lot for a long time but uh, Proverbs says, he who digs a pit for someone else will fall into the pit. 
And this is what's happening. They are falling into their own pit and the Lord is hemming them in at the end of their life and they're being exposed and their lives are being exposed. Uh, the Lord knows our hearts. He knows our ambitions. He knows our our tendency to want to promote ourselves and to have the limelight. When, when I was a young pastor... I had to deal with this and I wasn't dealing with it real well. Because I was in a small church, I wanted it to become a big church. And you can couch that in terms that are acceptable, but really, really down deep, I, um, I wanted to be in the spotlight. And I wanted to have a large ministry and I wanted to have a claim and And I, I was aware of it, and I was working on it, sort of. <laughs> but I have this heavenly father who loves me. And said, okay, we better take care of this. And so he did. And that's when he put me in a very, very tough situation and uh, I had some selfish ambition in regard to future plans and my ministry, and I made a move I shouldn't have made, and man, he just hammered me. And it all blew up in my face. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And uh, I interviewed with all these churches, nobody wanted me. They, they were, I mean, they were impressed with the, the wallpaper more than they were with me. <clears throat> I mean, there was no interest. And the Lord just hemmed me in. And I wound up going to this little, tiny, legalistic Baptist church with old people. People who were the age I am now. <laughs> I was 30, you know. I was going to change the world. And they were very gracious and very sweet people. And he just set me down there. And it just about crushed me. Because I knew... That, that situation, it was in a very, um, the real estate was so expensive in that section of the San Francisco Bay Area that they'd closed all the elementary schools because young families couldn't buy a house. It was beyond their reach. The only way you could have a house is if you bought it on the GI Bill after World War II. And so you're sitting on a couple million in equity for a 1,400 square foot house. And I'm not really exaggerating. So young families couldn't get in there. So the church wasn't going to grow. It was just an older area. Um, that's where the Lord plopped me down. And I knew I couldn't change that and I couldn't make it grow. And I never did. David said it was good for me that I was afflicted. Because you see, I learned lessons there that they don't teach you in seminary. It's called failure 101. It's called obscurity 101. It's called Depression 101. What was God doing? Well, he needed to humble me. That's where I remember reading Jeremiah 45.5. Seekest thou great things for thyself? <laughs> yep, that's me. Seek them not. What did John the Baptist say about Jesus? 
He must increase. I must decrease. It's about Jesus. It's about glorifying God, not men, not me, not you, not anybody else. I desperately needed that. I'm thankful for it. I, uh, I have learned to be afraid of myself. For good reason. Because I'll get ideas and I'll get plans and before I take any steps, I better check them out with the Lord and with my wife and with several good friends that I walk with through life. So I'll make a call. Hey, let me run something by you. If you got a few minutes, yeah, let me run this by you. Let me get your input. And whatever these two or three guys say to me is what I do, whatever Mary says. Because in an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. And I don't want to go down that road again. I don't want to go to summer school again and have to take those classes over. You know what I mean? Those are painful. So if God's got you in a time, if he's got you right now in the wilderness, just ask him, Lord, teach me every lesson you've got for me here. And he'll teach it to you. And then, and then, do it. Do it. This selfish ambition stuff. Uh, you know who the first person was that had selfish ambition? It was Satan. When he rebelled against God. He was the highest of the angels. But if you read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, there's a description there. He wanted to be like God. He didn't want to be the highest of the creation. He wanted to be equal to God. He wanted to be superior to God because of selfish ambition. That's why it says in James, uh, this ambition is not that which comes down from heaven, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Why? Because someone wants to be first. Someone wants power. Someone wants control. Someone wants this or they want that. So they'll do anything it takes to get their agenda in place. Anything. We got to get to a place where we pray, not my will, but thine be done. That's the safest place in the world. Not my will, thine be done. You want me to lower place, Lord? I'm fine with it. Just help me to be faithful in that lower place. The place I, want to, I don't wanna be, just help me to learn the lessons you have for me and help me to get a perspective that I obviously need to have that I haven't had up until now. Don't promote yourself. Let, not that you don't work hard and if there's a job thing that you don't put it out there, but this gets out of control. I'm gonna build my own platform. I'm gonna have my own podcast. I mean, why? Why? I see all these kids trying to get their own podcast. 
I see Christian kids trying to get their own podcast. And you know the problem? They're not mature enough to have a podcast. Because they don't know the scriptures because they're young. But we live in a day and age where anybody can get a platform. Let God give you a platform. You be faithful where you are. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. God's your promoter, Psalm 75. Promotion comes not from the east or from the west or from the desert, but from the Lord. He raises up one, he sets down another. He knows where you are, and he can promote you when, when you're ready. Why would you want to be promoted before you're ready? Because it's not going to work. You ever hear of the Peter Principle? The Peter Principle is that someone who's very successful in a particular area is promoted then to their level of incompetence. You're the greatest salesman in the company, and then they make you sales manager. You can't manage your way out of a paper bag. And now you got 28 guys uh, reporting to you. You're not any good at that. Yeah, but man, it pays more money, and there's more benefits, and there's more prestige, and I really want it. Why? Why? Who, who cares? What are you good at? Stay with what you're good at. You love it, you enjoy it, you're productive, you help other people, great. <laughs> but we all gotta learn the hard way, don't we? At least it seems like we do. Um, article by Jim Davis tells of a, and I'm kinda subtly looking at the clock here, tells of a study that Campus Crusade for Christ did in the early 2000s. Uh, really good ministry. I'll just kind of set this up by letting him tell you about it. In the early 2000s, Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as CRU, C-R-U, experienced an inordinate number of morally failing campus ministers. Men and women in various ministries and varied contexts who seemingly followed the Lord faithfully for decades suddenly embezzled money, harbored addictions, and cheated on their spouses. This just doesn't happen with crusade. It happens in churches. It happens in the body of Christ. Under the leadership of Mark Reuter and with the help of Henry Cloud, crew examined these moral failings, seeking to identify common patterns of behavior in hopes of preventing them in the future. The patterns were clear, and the profile of an at-risk leader emerged. Sadly, these patterns are just as present and identifiable in today's church planning movement and have contributed to recent public falls. Then they give four basic profiles that they came up with. The first one is this, the narcissist star who rises quickly. This is the young leader who has immediate success. What's the problem with this? He's young. So last year, the first church I ever pastored was having their 40th anniversary, invited me to come back, but I couldn't because of scheduling conflicts. So after the Bible study was over, I stood up here and we shot a video for like three minutes. And it showed the video that Sunday of the anniversary. And I basically said to them that recently I was talking with uh, my friend John Brandon. I was 28, John was 22. And we were on the phone and we were talking about the early years. And I said to him, 
when I think back to my early years as pastor of that church, two words come to my mind. First word is young. The second word is stupid. And he agreed with me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he did it nicely, but I mean, it was true. I was young and I was stupid. And what did I want? I wanted a bigger church. I wasn't ready for a bigger church. I had no idea what I I had no idea what I was asking for. I couldn't handle the church I had. Now we had some growth, thank God for it. But I was so far in over my head administratively, I I was swimming in the deep end. And I needed floaties on my arms. I couldn't couldn't handle it. Uh, What's the first, what do they call this? Basic profile, who falls? The narcissistic star who rises quickly. There's no maturity. There's some, but there's not enough. There's not uh, a grounding in the scripture. There's some, but not enough. This is why uh, in 1 Timothy 3, when you select elders, you don't put a young man as an elder. You don't pick a novice. You pick men with experience and have walked with Christ for a while who've got some miles on their tires. The second guy uh, that is the at-risk leader is the narcissistic star who doesn't rise, who doesn't have success, but who is striving to get to the top, to get into the limelight, for people to see how wonderful and great he really is, but he can't pull it off. And so what happens with him is that internally he gets angry and he gets mad and he gets jealous of those who are successful, yet he can't say anything to those people because he's in ministry. So what he does is he has this thing called displaced anger and the only place his anger can come out is at home. So he fails at home. And he's absolute hell to live with at home. Even though he's got scripture memorized and he knows all the right things to say. And there's some other traits. They've got four other uh, basic profiles. You know what they all have in common? At the root, selfish ambition. What is, it says, uh, the first two say uh, narcissistic. What is narcissism? Self-love. Narcissism is, narcissism is selfishness. It's the need to lead, it's the need to be in front, it's the need to be the center, it's the need to have your agenda, it's the need to be in control, it's, the, it's you, 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 you. Me, 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 me. Every one of these is just different cuts off the same beef. One of them's uh, flank steak, one of them's uh, prime rib, one of them's chopped uh, ground round, uh, one of them's uh, sirloin. It's all selfish ambition. Guard your heart, guard your mind. This stuff will eat you alive. You guys still with me? I told you this would be heavy. Um, Let's move quickly now. Since I only have two hours remaining. (laughs) Number three. False teachers are actively denying Christ. They actively deny Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, and you know this verse, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So false teachers, like Rob Bell, 
False teachers like Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R, uh, false teachers like Brian McLaren deny who Jesus is. Now, at one time, they might have held to it. Uh, go back to Second Peter 2. Let's go back to our text. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Watch this. Even denying the master who bought them. So they're going to deny that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What you're going to see in a false teacher, he's going to deny that Jesus is the only way. Oh, actually, there are many ways. When you hear someone saying eventually that all men will be saved, that's denying what Jesus said and who Jesus is. I am the way. I am the truth. Oh, there are many truths. Richard Rohr, you're not maybe familiar with him. A lot of young millennial Christians raised in churches are following this guy. And he's a mess. He's a train wreck. I saw a podcast this afternoon with Richard Rohr and Rob Bell. Now, that's a duo. Because Rob Bell used to pastor a church and preach the gospel up in the Midwest. John Piper did a tweet a number of years ago after reading one of Bell's books. He said, farewell, Rob Bell. And some people thought it was because Bell had denied the existence of hell. But Piper came back later and said, actually, in the book, what I was referring to, he denied the atonement of Christ for the forgiveness of sin that it was, it was effective and the only way to have peace with God. And when you deny the work of Christ on the cross, you're an apostate. This is serious stuff. And then once, once you deny this, you're going to deny this, and Rob Bill's out there, you know, surfing in L.A., and he has this podcast, and he hangs out with Oprah, and he's got his followers, and... You know, homosexuality is fine. The church needs to get over this gay thing. Gay marriage is fine. God loves you, accepts you. No problem there whatsoever. That's what Scripture says. It's like telling a guy who's a serial adulterer, oh, God's fine with that, sure. Go on a business trip, sure. Sleep with whoever you want. Oh, yeah, God, Jesus loves you. He understands. He gets you. He's on your team. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Was that First Thessalonians 4? That each of you know how to... basically handle your own body. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You are not your own. See, there's no sin. You can just do whatever you want. Brian uh, McLaren was a pastor who wrote books. He wrote a book called Generous Orthodoxy. What is that? A generous orthodoxy. It means the Bible doesn't cut it. Orthodoxy, 
means true truth. Well, I'm going to add to the true truth. Jesus isn't the only way. The Bible isn't the only book. By the way, Richard Rohr today was talking with Rob Bell about uh, this concept that Buddhism can help you become a better Christian. You know, I didn't know that. (laughs) I need to check into that. They're denying Christ. Number four, they're headed for destruction. They're headed for destruction. Uh, D.A. Carson, I get this devotional emailed to me every morning. It's called For the Love of God. And there is a, um, there, there is a calendar that if you read four chapters a day, it'll take you through the Bible in a year. And I've used this for years by Robert Murray McChain. And so what happens, you can, uh, for each day, so you're reading four different chapters throughout the Bible, but he'll comment on one of the chapters, and Carson has great depth. He's a professor up at uh, Trinity Seminary. Uh, Very wise and discerning. Uh, So he was talking the other day, October 7th, about Solomon. I read this. And you know, Solomon's heart was turned by foreign women, and then even though God appeared to him twice and these foreign women turned his heart away and he knew he was not to marry foreign wives, but he did anyway. And he winds up building temples to these false gods and idolatry and it, horrific stuff. At the end, um, Carson says this, because you see the point we're looking at is that false teachers are headed for destruction, for destruction. Uh, before I read that, look at the text again. Second Peter 2. These false teachers will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Watch this, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now look at verse uh, 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Sometimes it seems we ask, why isn't God judging these guys? Because they're still out there, they're still around. The two men I talked about, they're still around. Why doesn't God judge them? Listen to what Carson says. Despite all the blessing, wisdom, power, wealth, prestige, and honor that Solomon enjoyed, all received from the hand of God, the sad fact of the matter is that his own conduct was paving the way for judgment and the undoing of David's dynasty. These convoluted developments await tomorrow's meditation, but for now, it's enough to reflect on the fact, watch this, that extraordinary blessings do not necessarily signal faithfulness. Because God is so slow to anger, surely a good thing, the judgments that our corruptions deserve are often being long delayed. Because God's merciful. Do not be hasty to assume that present blessings signal present fidelity. The terrible fruit of faithlessness may take a long time in coming, but it will come. Uh, Which leads to the next point, number five. 
False teachers are popular and immoral. They're popular. How do you say, so how do you know they're popular? Because it says in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Many. They're popular. People love this stuff. Because it's false teaching. And if it's false teaching, then the standards are going to be lowered and I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want and I can sleep with whoever I want and I can just, I'm just free. And I'm all for, it's all forgiven because I'm under the flow, which is how Richard Rohr refers to the Trinity. He's done a book on the Trinity and it's about the flow. The flow. Uh huh. The flow. It's utter nonsense. False teachers are popular and they're immoral. So when I was a young pastor struggling with my selfish ambition issues, and then I went to that little church and sat for three years and didn't feel, I, I felt like God was finished with me. I felt like he'd never use me. It was a depressing time for me. It was, it was, it was my toughest chapter. There's a guy about 100 miles away who's a youth pastor who is young, who is incredibly gifted, and he's got hundreds and hundreds verging on thousands of kids coming to this church where he's youth pastor. And the parents are coming. Everybody's coming. And I mean, he was in high demand, and He's speaking everywhere. And I remember sitting over there in that little church with all those old people. <laughs> I do. And I remember, I never got invited to speak till I was probably 33 or 34 years old. I just sat. And I'm looking around at these guys, and they're all young, and they're speaking. And I figured I never, I mean, I just figured, it was, you know, I had a shot, and okay. So help me to learn, Lord, what I need to learn here. That's fine. It was hard, but well, the problem here with this guy is that he had a weakness for young girls. And uh, he'd win them over and get their trust and then he would start uh, making moves on them. Not just one. And then a couple of them went to the pastor and the pastor shut them down because you know, yeah, you, well, you, you, you can't expose this. I mean, the guy's bringing in too much money, too many parents. So they quietly just shut the girls down, pushed him off to a church plant somewhere. He was there for a while. And then another church across the country heard he was available. They wanted him, and he shows up, and once again, it explodes. And once again, his weakness for young girls comes out. And he's making his moves. And then he's got to leave there, and nothing is said. And he goes to another church across the country, and same scenario, big growth, big boom, boom, boom. He's getting up in age. And at some point, maybe 15 years ago, he actually starts a church. He'd been able to stifle all the legitimate accusations. He starts a church, 
He's got funding because he's such a charismatic guy. He's got money coming in like crazy. Build this incredible church. About a year and a half ago, he got up and resigned because several of the girls who are now in their 50s got together and contacted a ministry that helps women who have been sexually exploited in churches. And uh, he had to resign. And he very well could wind up in jail. Is it Proverbs 13, 12 that says, what you do in Vegas stays in Vegas? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. You can be sure your sin will find you out. So why not deal with it now? Instead of covering. Come clean. Whatever it is. Just come clean. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, First John 1, 9 to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, he covered it up for a year. And then Nathan, the prophet, called him out. And then he finally repented and came clean. There's great forgiveness with the Lord. David had consequences. He was forgiven, but there were consequences, and there will be consequences. But better to step up and deal with it than to encounter the increasing discipline of God if you're in the camp and if you're his child. We've got to learn to deal with our sin and repent and turn from it and run to the Lord and get under authority and submit to authority in the church. And you can be restored. Now, guys like that, in my opinion, should never be put back into leadership positions. Because an elder, 1 Timothy 3, they're to be above reproach, and they're not above reproach. But that doesn't mean that they can't get on with their lives and have ministries quieter, personally, behind the scenes, under supervision, if there's genuine repentance. But that takes time. Our tendency is to take guys that are so gifted when there's a moral failing and put him back into ministry after a year and a half or two years. Why? Oh, he's, he's so gifted. He's so good. As Robert Murray McChain said, it's not giftedness that counts. It's likeness to Jesus. It's character. It's character. Number six, false teachers are marked by greed and exploitation. Uh, do you see that back there? Verse 3, 2 Peter 2, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They'll take advantage. Why? Because they're fueled on selfish ambition. It's what they can get. It's what they can conjure up. It's what they can con. It's what they can, it's all about them. If you've ever run into someone like this, you know the devastating experience and it, it causes you to question the truth of the gospel. It does. If you've ever run into a leader and it turns out they're fraudulent like this 
and they've lied and they've taken advantage or they've embezzled money or they've done whatever they've done. Uh, it's, it, it's right what it says in verse 2. Uh, many follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. The way of the truth will be injured. How can Christianity be true when these guys are running around? Well, we don't put our eyes on men. We put our eyes on Jesus. Jesus never disappoints, ever. Ever. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Everybody else is messed up. Everybody else is a sinner. So we don't put men on pedestals. We put Jesus. We lift up Jesus. Lastly, false teachers are false in their teaching and living. They're false in their teaching and living. We just read it. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. First Timothy 4.16. Paul writes to Timothy and says this. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. That's it. Pay close attention to yourself, to your heart, to your thought life, and to your teaching. It's just not teaching. It's just not giftedness. It's, go, it's what's going on inside. It's just not memorizing the Bible. It's applying the Bible. Create in me a clean heart, O oh Lord. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. We keep coming back to the Savior. We keep coming back to Christ. Every time I study something like this, it scares me all over again. And I don't ever want it to not scare me. I, I, I have seen better men than me go down. And I know the potential in my own heart. Dave Kraft is a longtime pastor and a wise teacher. He quotes 2 Corinthians 2.11 where Paul prays that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. We're not ignorant of Satan's strategies. And Dave Kraft says, here are the four things I pray for myself almost every day. And this sure fits in with this because I don't want to be like these guys. I want to run from this. So number one, Dave Kraft says, I pray for purity and against lust. When I talk to the Lord, I pray for purity and I pray against lust. Dear God, help me to control my thoughts. Help me to control my eyes. I just had it yesterday. I mean, I'm somewhere, I don't know, somewhere just average, somewhere doing life, getting a Diet Coke, I don't know. And this gal walks by, and she walked by, and I looked away, and then I looked back. And I went, you idiot, what are you doing? 
and I turned away. And then she walked by again, and I had to fight to not look, because I wanted to look. We're men. That's how God made us. But that's no excuse. I have to pray for purity, and I have to pray against lust. Help me to do the right thing here, Lord. I know better than that. I pray, for humi- I pray for humility, and I pray against pride. Let not the foot of pride come upon me. Don't let it control me. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, he will exalt you. Get low under Jesus. Submit yourself to his authority. Number three, I pray for contentment and against greed. Lord, let me be content with what I have. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if I really stop and think about it, oh, there's the guys with a new house and buying this and all that, and that's, that's but Lord, don't, don't, don't let me lose my, don't let me lose my equilibrium here. You've been so good. You've been so gracious. Look at all you've done. And then start thanking him and enumerate what he's done. There's this old chorus, count your blessings, Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. The problem is with contentment is we compare ourselves to people who have more. Compare yourself to people who have less, and you'll praise him. And then he says, I pray for patience and against anger. I pray for patience and against anger. What is this? This is asking God to help you guard your heart and not get into this camp. It's a hard issue. And we've got a Savior who's full of mercy and grace and who will forgive. Let's pray. Father, this is sobering stuff. But thank you for the gospel. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that our sins can be forgiven. They have been forgiven, and as we walk through this life, we get our feet dirty, we get dirty, we get dirty hands, we get dirty thoughts, we get dirty. But again, if we'll confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, to get the dirt off of us, to rub it off our faces and out of our minds and off our hands. You were faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for that. Uh, We run to you tonight. Help us to run away from sin. For the one who is um, holding on to sin, to the one who is holding on to rebellion, bring great conviction upon them to turn from it and to turn to you and receive forgiveness and find peace again in their hearts. That's our prayer tonight, in Jesus' name, amen.